Longfellow theorizes that it lies in the Jewish ability to see salvations and victories that occurred in the Bible in the past as hearkening further miracles yet to come. Longfellow wrote about the Jews, for in the background figures vague and vast, of patriarchs and of prophets rose sublime, in all the great traditions of the past, they saw reflected in the coming time. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 276, Morning Memory in Jerusalem. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his memoir, The Revolt, Menachem Begin described how the British mandate had issued an edict forbidding praying Jews from blowing the shofar at the Western Wall at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. And every year, the underground Irgun movement would smuggle shofars into what was then essentially a small alley at the wall where Jews would pray, recruiting young boys to blow at the holiday's close. Begin explains why in his view, giving in to the British on this matter was unacceptable, and why those that wished to give in were so profoundly wrong. He writes, quote, What our ancestors refused to tolerate from their ancient oppressors, even at the cost of their lives and freedom, is tolerated by the generation of Jews which describes itself as the last of oppression and the first of redemption, a people that does not defend its holy places, that does not even try to defend them, is not free however much it may babble about freedom, end quote. Begin further describes those Jews that wished to give in by writing that, quote, among the Jews themselves there were unexpected allies who in snobbish pretense of progress argued that a few pedigree cows were worth more than all these stones, end quote. By stones, Begin refers, of course, to the stones of the Temple Mount. And as I described in my new article and commentary, Begin went on to argue that the approach of those Jews was belied by the experience of the stones of the Temple Mount and the whisper that in his experience came from atop the mountain itself, asking that Jews not forget the glory of the temple that once was there. Begin wrote, quote, These stones are not silent. They do not cry out. They whisper. They speak softly of the house that once stood there, of kings who knelt here once in prayer, of prophets and seers who here declaimed their message, of heroes who fell here dying, and of how the great flame, at once destructive and illuminating, was here kindled, end quote. Jews, in other words, are called to never forget Jerusalem, to never forget the temple, to never forget what once stood on the Temple Mount, to never cease to hear the call of the Temple Mount. It is this capacity for memory, reverence, and hearing the call of Jerusalem that motivates the Jewish return in the age of Cyrus, a return that was first and foremost not only to the land of Israel, but to the Temple Mount itself. The book of Ezra begins before the age of Ezra himself. It describes the decree of the Persian king Cyrus allowing the Jewish return to the Holy Land. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold, and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. 
Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbatsar the prince of Judah. Note, ladies and gentlemen, the main focus here. While, of course, Jews are called to return to the land, the emphasis of Cyrus's proclamation is on the temple in Jerusalem. And whereas the Babylonian king Belshazzar profaned the temple treasures, King Cyrus reverently returns those treasures to the Jews. The first aliyah, or ascent, following Cyrus's proclamation is led by the Davidic descendant Zerubbabel, along with the designated high priest Yehoshua. We are told in chapter 3, And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Yoshua, the son of Yotzadok, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brethren, and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom, as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. Let us explain the imagery. The temple is not yet built. It still lies in ruins. But the Israelites that return begin sacrificial services right away, because in the words of the Talmud, Makrivin Afopishain Bayat, one can create an altar and bring offerings on the Temple Mount, even if the Temple itself is not yet built. But there's another point to be made here, noted by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik and Rabbi Yigal Ariel. When we compare the settling of the Holy Land by this generation to the original settling of Joshua, a fascinating inversion is to be found. Whereas Joshua conquered and settled the land, and only later, much later, in a different generation, was Jerusalem established as the central sacred city. Here the Jews went first to Jerusalem. They started in Jerusalem, started with offerings, started with the temple, and only afterward turned their attention to the land itself. The reason for this is obvious, that in the days of Joshua, there was not yet a temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had not yet acquired its full status. But from the moment that Solomon brought the ark inside the Holy of Holies, God made Jerusalem his permanent dwelling place. And so the Jews, returning from exile, still sensed its sanctity. And they went to Jerusalem first. They went to the Temple Mount first. Only afterward did they focus on settling the rest of the land. It is in the second year of their arrival that the Jews actually begin the building of the Temple itself. This ought to have been an incredibly joyous occasion. And yet we find in the biblical description of the moment a poignant and mesmerizing mix of emotions. Chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Yoshua, the son of Yotzadok, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that had come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Yehoshua with his sons and his brethren, Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Yehuda, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hanadad 
with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his loving loyalty endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were elderly men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. It is a striking and moving scene. Jubilation mixes with weeping. Joy joins with mourning. The Jews mourn what has been lost, and they celebrate all that they hope is about to be achieved. Here we see a mix of mourning, memory, and focus on the future. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in a poem that he wrote about visiting a Jewish cemetery, a composition that is not wholly positive about Judaism as a living faith, writes one powerful line wherein he ponders the source of the stubborn endurance of the Jews. Longfellow theorizes that it lies in the Jewish ability to see salvations and victories that occurred in the Bible in the past as hearkening further miracles yet to come. Longfellow wrote about the Jews, for in the background figures vague and vast of patriarchs and of prophets rose sublime in all the great traditions of the past they saw reflected in the coming time. The Talmud calls this Maaseh Avot Siman Lebanim, that what occurred to our forefathers is assigned to the children. The eternal relevance of the biblical stories sustains us. We can both remember and mourn for what we lost, and we can therefore work for what is yet to be. And what we see from this story is that in both mourning and celebration, the Jewish relationship with the land of Israel remains bound up with all that Jerusalem embodies, so that Jews simultaneously remember what Jerusalem once was and continue to think of what Jerusalem can be. In the Irgun Museum building in Yafo, on the shores of the Mediterranean, there sits in a glass case one shofar. The horn is seemingly small, unimpressive, but it is extraordinary because it is bound up with the Jewish refusal to forget Jerusalem. As the exhibit there explains, that shofar was blown by one young boy at the end of Yom Kippur, and it was confiscated by a British Scottish soldier who took it with him back to Britain, but who ultimately ensured that it would be returned to the land of Israel. We will perhaps tell the shofar's larger tale in another episode, but the shofar's symbolism is sublime. The shofar represents the call of Judaism, and like the mingling of jubilance and tears at the Temple Mount described in the book of Ezra, the shofar's call has been interpreted as reflecting both the wailing and triumphal exclamations throughout Jewish history. Thus, for the shofar to be returned is truly an embodiment of how Jews refused to forget Jerusalem once it was sanctified, how the whisper of the Temple Mount stones was always heard, and how the Jewish return to the Holy Land itself is bound up with the Jewish love of Jerusalem. Today, the stones of the Temple Mount continue to whisper to us, and this whisper can be heard by those like Begin who are willing to listen. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.